Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com, to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. In 1966, a physician and civil rights activist named Tom Waddell was drafted into the U.S. Army. He trained as a paratrooper and medic, but objected when he received orders to ship out to Vietnam. Tom expected to be court-martialed. Instead, he got a very different assignment. Mexico City, October 12, 1968. The opening day of the 19th Olympic Games. Tom had played football and done gymnastics in college, and he began training for the decathlon shortly after graduating. So instead of Vietnam, the Army sent him to compete in the decathlon at the 1968 Olympics. Tom placed sixth in the decathlon, which is impressive enough. But his biggest contribution may have been the support he gave the two American runners, Tommy Smith and John Carlos, during their famous raised fist salute on the podium and the ensuing backlash, which we covered in a previous episode. Tom wasn't the hero of the story, but he was one of the few white athletes who spoke out on Smith and Carlos's behalf. Tom told the media, quote, Black Americans have been discredited by the American flag more often than they have sullied it. The protest angered Colonel Francis Don Miller, an army officer who traveled to Mexico City seemingly to keep participating service members in line. Tom Waddell avoided court-martial and received an honorable discharge from the Army. He moved to San Francisco and set up a medical practice. Colonel Miller went on to serve as the executive director of the United States Olympic Committee. Tom was outspoken in support of his Black teammates in Mexico City, but there was something he was keeping quiet. Tom was gay. He was still in the closet during the Mexico City Olympics, but in the 1980s, he became the face of a movement that sought to carve out a place for gay athletes in American sports. Tom went on to co-found the Gay Olympics, a celebration of queer athletics that continues to this day. And Colonel Miller took him to court over it in a case that went all the way to the Supreme Court. I'm Molly Bloom, and this is Torched, a show about the heat of competition and what the greatest athletes would lose to win. This season is about controversies and scandals on the biggest world stage, the Olympics. And this episode is actually about a different Olympics. This is a story about a community that organized its own games against the odds and in spite of a serious legal threat from the U.S. Olympic Committee.
Tom Waddell arrived in San Francisco at a time when the gay culture there was in full bloom. The Castro in the 1970s is the stuff of legend. One of the first places in the world where being gay was a source of pride for an entire community. San Francisco was the epicenter of gay liberation, and Tom was right in the thick of it. In 1976, Tom and his then-partner, Charles Deaton, appeared on the cover of People magazine, the first same-sex couple to do so. Tom was out, but he never forgot what it was like to be a closeted athlete. They always got harassed in the locker rooms. Tom saw the most of that during the Olympics. There were people in the locker rooms that just weren't out. They were afraid of getting harassed. Just like even Tom didn't come out till after that. That's Tom's wife, Sarah, who we mentioned earlier. Tom and Sarah were both gay and were both out of the closet by the time they met. So if you're surprised that they got married, you're not alone. As we'll hear from Sarah in a bit, it just made sense to them. Along with their daughter, Jessica, Sarah has worked tirelessly to keep Tom's legacy alive since his death in 1986. Across the country in New York City, the Stonewall riots had brought about a revolution for the gay community, similar to what was happening in San Francisco. But that didn't mean that everyone felt at home in the burgeoning gay scene. For Gino Dermody, a high school teacher and wrestling coach, finding like-minded people was a challenge. I wasn't a very happy homosexual because most of the gay guys I knew were into drag impersonation. You know, it, fine, it's great, it's just not me. Gino told us that he was semi-closeted. He could pass as straight, avoiding the kind of abuse that many gay men suffered. In 1975, he joined a short-lived gay wrestling club in Soho. He joined another club where he says the policy was, don't ask, don't tell, shut up, and wrestle. We didn't have a gay community that we could identify with. I mean, I tried so hard in New York. I could name all the bars on the Upper East Side, West Side. But I would go to these things, and it was just like was so depressing for me. Because it's like, is this my future? Going to bars, drinking, getting drunk, having anonymous sex. And it just wasn't me. It just wasn't fitting. Tom, a former Olympic athlete in San Francisco, and Gino, an avid wrestler in New York, had something in common. No gay athletic community to be part of. Sure, there were bars, clubs, magazines, and other entertainment catering to gay people, but there still weren't many spaces for openly gay athletes. But there was a bowling alley right in the heart of Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco. It was called Park Bowl, and even though she was barely out of high school, Sarah ended up running it. And this was during the, uh, the Flower Children days, the Haight-Ashbury days, well, Park Bowl was way that Hayden Ashbury. That's where it was. So I, I always wanted to be a hippie and to go through. I was just so excited. I got my bowling ball and I went into the bowl and they came up to me and they asked if I'd like to work at the bowl. I said, oh, my God, this is like a dream come through. I just moved. Within three months, I became the general manager at Park Bowl. Sarah quickly found that, contrary to the stereotypes, there were plenty of gay people out there interested in athletic competition. We started the gay leagues, and they got packed. We had 22 lanes. We were packed. Tom also got involved in the nascent gay sports scene. And like Sarah, he realized that it held the potential for something much greater. Tom received an award at a small dinner put on by some of the few gay sports leagues in San Francisco. And as he made his speech, he had an epiphany. Here's him explaining it 
to a Canadian journalist in 1983. I got up at the award ceremony and I said, wouldn't it be great if the city of San Francisco uh, had a, a gay Olympics and invited the rest of the world? And everyone stood up and raised their hands and began cheering. I thought, my God. Well, I had to follow up on that. Sarah wasn't only an expert bowler and the manager of Park Bowl. She also ran the Artemis Cafe, a hub for lesbians and feminists. Sarah spoke lovingly of the hate in those days, but she also described it as a pretty segregated place where gay men routinely barred women from entering their bars and clubs. Sarah felt the need to bring gays and lesbians together, and that's how she met Tom. When he approached her to help him organize what was then known as the Gay Olympic Games, she immediately recognized a kindred spirit. And I made a meeting with Tom, and I fell in love with the entire idea. I said, I will be involved with you because you seem, you're wonderful. I will be involved with you in the games, and even though you have men, all men right now, I'm going to come in and I'll bring you the women. Tom wanted the Gay Olympic Games to be a week-long festival of sport that would show the world that gay and athletic were not mutually exclusive terms. And the idea caught on. Pretty soon, a small army of volunteers was fanning out across San Francisco and across the country to organize events, secure venues, and most crucially, get people to show up. Tom, Sarah, and others began traveling the country to drum up support. It wasn't long before Gino heard about it back in New York. You know, this is all kind of pre-internet, pre-email listserv. So the way they got the word out was through people who had money who could travel around the world and meet with the local gay mafia, the bars, and all that kind of stuff. In New York, you saw flyers on the poles in Greenwich Village. And they started to come around and people would come around to like, like our wrestling practices at um, McBurney YMCA, 63rd Street Y. You had people coming around putting out feelers and saying, hey, this is going on. Do you think anybody would be interested? And that's where I got involved right away because I thought, wow. In the planning, Sarah's priority was actually making sure that the term gay was used inclusively. When Tom had first approached her. It was called the gay lesbian games at the time. I said, I really don't want that. I don't want the separatism. I'm about taking away separatism from everything. At the time, there was a lot of separatism. Um, I said, I don't want tokens. She says she nixed the idea. What are you doing? Open it up. Let's make everything gay. Just like gay. Gay is happiness. It's not just about sexuality. It doesn't tell you about men. It doesn't tell you about women. It doesn't tell you anything about race. It's about everybody. And that's what I wanted was something with everybody. So they called it the Gay Olympic Games. The Gay Olympic Games, sometimes just called the Gay Olympics, were designed with everybody in mind. The events would be open to all, gay or straight. The emphasis would be less on winning gold and more on doing your personal best. To this day, if you talk to participants, they'll tell you about their personal records, just as proudly as medal winners talk about their medals. It's about being there, sharing your true self with the world. The events were scheduled to begin on August 28, 1982, at Kazar Stadium in Golden Gate Park. Gay-owned businesses in the Castro sold gay Olympics merchandise and offered special deals for athletes. The organizers sold over 10,000 tickets to the opening ceremonies. The gay Olympic Games were going to happen. 
there was just one problem. The word Olympic. Talk to anyone involved in the gay games, and they'll reel off a list of groups and entities that have been allowed to refer to themselves as Olympics. Well, there are lots of other Olympics. There's the Rat Olympics, there's the Police Olympics, there's the Fireman's Olympics. We wanted the same as everybody else. The USOC never challenged the word Olympic for anybody else. They never Police Olympics, whatever. There, there were all these other Olympics, and the USC never challenged it. Yet, when the gay one came along, oh, there was this challenge. The Olympics meant a lot to Tom. He had never forgotten what it was like to compete on the world stage in Mexico City. The name Gay Olympic Games hadn't been chosen at random. It was a marker of Tom and his fellow organizers' ambition to create a similarly grand stage where nobody had to hide who they really were. But not everyone shared that vision. Less than three weeks before the Gay Olympic Games were slated to begin, the U.S. Olympic Committee, which by this time was led by Colonel Francis Don Miller, filed a case against them. The Rat Olympics, Police Olympics, and the Special Olympics, notwithstanding, the USOC was cracking down on the Gay Olympics. To those involved, it was obvious that the Gay Olympics were being singled out. Of course it was stupid, legally stupid, morally stupid, but you have to realize that at the time, you have to look at the time, the case was very simple. They thought they owned the word Olympic, The USOC was established by the Amateur Sports Act of 1978. It was charged by Congress with organizing the athletes who would represent the United States at the Olympics. Miller and his attorneys asserted that the Amateur Sports Act gave the USOC the exclusive right to use the word Olympic, and that it was ready to take the Gay Olympics to court if they continued to use it. Monique Berlioz, then director of the International Olympic Committee, disagreed saying that, quote, the U.S. Congress has no right to give away something that belongs to the IOC. But a judge sided with Miller. Three weeks before they were set to begin, the gay Olympic Games were hit with an injunction, barring them from using the word Olympic. With no time to organize a legal defense before the Games began, Tom and his fellow organizers made a difficult choice. It was their dream to show the world that they would go forward with the gay Olympic Games but they would omit the word Olympic. We had posters, we had pins, and even our medals that we ordered said Gay Olympic Games. We had to cross out the word Olympic on everything. So they, you can see where the word Olympic, we had to mold over that with the medals. And as far as the certificates, saying an athlete's participation certificate, as far as everything else, we had to cross it out. I I got volunteers up to Ying Yang to come in and to do this, and we would cross everything up. The one thing that we did, we had a little pin that say Gay Olympic Games, which I still have some pins. We took nail polish and we covered the word Olympic so that when they can get home, they can scratch off the, <laughs> the nail polish. The injunction was an insult as well as an inconvenience, but it also gave the first ever Gay Bleep Games, as one Bay Area reporter article called them, a spark of defiance. August 28th arrived, and Tina Turner headlined the opening ceremonies. Teams from all over the world paraded into Kazar Stadium, each carrying a banner announcing where they were from and wearing uniforms of their own design. The Australians wore satin uniforms of cobalt blue. The Belgians wore green. The team from New York dressed in white shirts and ties, 
while the delegation from Beverly Hills wore jeans. Over 1,300 athletes crowded the field, while an estimated 10,000 people cheered from the stands. When we got down to the Gay Games 1 at the Kizar Stadium, and they marched, oh God, I still get tears. When I watched them marching arm in arm with each other, male and female, the first time ever, ever, into the stadium, I shed tears because I don't know, I, I usually don't cry. We were all up in the arms. We were standing on stage waiting for them to come in. And it was fantastic. The point is, we did something that nobody else did. The crowd went crazy when San Francisco City Supervisor Doris Ward stepped up to the mic and welcomed them not to the gay games, but to the gay Olympics. Sarah, who served as the game's sports director, won the very first gold medal. And the fact that Olympic was blotted out with nail polish didn't make it any less special. I got the very first medal and I left running out of bowling because I had to go to physique. I was going to give out the medals for physique. And I was running from place to place. And as I ran into the hall where they were having physique, oh, I still get tears. I, I was wearing my gold medal and um, it stopped. They stopped physique. So as I walked in with the medal, I'm running in to make sure I'm on time, it all stopped. And everybody stood up and gave me this ovation because they never, they didn't see the medals yet. Nobody's seen the medals and they saw mine. I couldn't believe it. That was just, God bless my heart. No matter how much we went through of shit, those are the things that stay with you. Gino won a medal too. He admits that he may have underestimated the competition, but that was because he hadn't realized there were so many people like him out there. It was pretty stiff competition. I only took a bronze, and I thought I thought I was hot shit. <laughs> and yet there were other guys there that were from other places. But that was part of my education. Like, wow, they're all out there, and they just have to, for now, show themselves and come out. You know, come out, come out wherever you are, because if people get to know you, they're going to love you. And so much of this hate is just going to melt away. It's just ignorance. For athletes like Gino, discovering that there were other people like you, and even some who were better than you, was what made the first gay game so special. That and the perks of being a famous athlete. One of the things that the most exciting for me was, if you won a medal, every restaurant in the Castro would give you a free meal that week. Can you imagine for a wrestler who had been starving himself for <laughs> for months to get here, all of a sudden you can eat all you want in the Castro? Wow. Bars and clubs held special events for participants. Deep bonds formed between queer athletes from all over the world. And just like at the actual Olympics, there was plenty of hooking up. Meeting people like that, all of a sudden I felt like, you know, I might be able to find a partner for myself, finally. And everybody else looking around was like, my God, where did all these people come from? It was like finding, like I call it, the lost tribe. In the wake of Gay Games 1, new gay sports clubs sprang up all across the country. One of those was the now legendary Golden Gate Wrestling Club, which catered to people like him and focused on creating safe spaces for LGBTQIA youth. A lot of the clubs, like the swimmers, they got together and they started their big club and we did too. Uh, 
Golden Gate Wrestling was actually officially started at the first gay games. Like Gino, Tom was blown away by what he saw at the gay games. Here he is again in that 1982 interview. The, the, the formula for success was visibility and identity, and both were right there on the field. We were visible and we were identified. And what did people see? They saw healthy people out there doing something that everyone could understand. They were out there to compete and have fun. Success. That's what the first gay games were all about. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Is this house a good price compared to others in the area? Are prices going up or down? If I don't make an offer right this very moment, will I miss my chance? These are just some of the questions a home buyer might ask. And these are the sorts of questions an agent who is a Realtor can help answer. Because Realtors have the expertise, data, and access to specialty training to help you navigate the process of buying a home. They provide support, guidance, and have your back every step of the way. That's what Realtors do, because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com, to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. By the end of Gay Games 1, it was clear that there was an appetite for Gay Games 2. But Tom, Gino, Sarah, and a host of other organizers had some serious challenges facing them, including the dispute with the USOC. By the end of 1982, the temporary injunction had been made permanent. San Francisco Arts and Athletics, Inc., the organization formed to put on the Gay Games, was ordered to pay the USOC's legal fees. Suddenly, Tom had a lien placed against his home. It was enough to convince some that they should drop the issue entirely. Everyone on the board owned businesses on our gay games board. They owned businesses. One owned the Bay Area Reporter, the newspaper. They owned Twin Peaks, the saloon, the bar, awards by Chris. They all owned businesses. They got scared. None of them wanted to come back to Gay Games 2 because they were scared off that they would be, um, they put a lien on Tom's house. So they were all afraid they were going to get liens because we're the board of directors. And with all this going on, a small miracle happened. Tom and Sarah fell in love. You can tell it's something that Sarah has been asked to explain a lot. And when I met Tom, I don't know what happened. All I know is he is, he has a woman in me that I have, Tom has. And I have points of Tom that's in me that just is me. We fell in love with each other. We just did. It didn't stop us from being gay, but it definitely set up something different because we didn't know how to handle it. Sarah and Tom decided to keep their relationship a secret. They knew that if it came out, 
it was going to anger not only anti-gay bigots, but also some members of the gay community. But it made perfect sense to them. They were two of a kind. Among other things, they shared a competitive spirit. Tom never beat me at racquetball. Tom never, it's just he's not used to losing to a woman. But (laughs) I'm saying that whenever we played, I beat his tushy. He was a great athlete. Doesn't mean he was as good as me. (laughs) Even before she fell in love with Tom, Sarah wanted to have a baby. It turned out Tom had always wanted to be a parent too. As soon as we did the gay games, we decided, okay, now we can get, let's get pregnant. Their daughter, Jessica, was born in 1983. Sarah calls her a child of the gay games. This unconventional, conventional family raised a lot of eyebrows. Sarah remembers getting death threats, but also fan mail. The word got out, and I cannot tell you how much letters and postcards that we were getting from people all over, people that met each other, male and female, and that had kids And they named them Sarah. They named them Tom. We got stuff from everywhere. Looking through copies of the Bay Area Reporter from August 1982, the month the gay games began, you'll see articles about something called Kaposi's sarcoma, or KS. KS was a mysterious cancer that was starting to take the lives of gay men. The next month, the Center for Disease Control first used the term AIDS to refer to the syndrome that had been causing so many instances of KS. Another term was gay plague. Here's how Ronald Reagan's press secretary, Larry Speaks, responded to the news that AIDS had been declared an epidemic during his briefing on October 15, 1982, a little over a month after Gay Games won. Does the president have any reaction to the... Announcement from the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta that AIDS is now an epidemic in 600, over 600 cases. And, uh, over a third of them have died. I don't have it. Are you? Do you? You don't have it. Well, I'm relieved to hear that. Do you? You didn't answer my question. How do you know? Does the president, in other words, the White House looks on this as a great joke. Sadly, Speak's response was representative of how the federal government, and really most straight Americans, treated this emerging crisis. As activists implored the government and the medical establishment to take HIV-AIDS seriously, researchers began to understand what they were dealing with. The virus was spreading rampantly through gay communities across the world, and it had been for a while. My first boyfriend was diagnosed In 1978, at Sloan Kettering in New York, Ricky Coker, and he was diagnosed by one of the local um, cancer guys at Sloan Kettering, who was an intern, (laughs) Fauci. Yes, that's the Dr. Fauci. And Fauci was the one who diagnosed him. And he gave us, he gave me advice and he he did all this questioning and research, but he gave me advice that basically saved me. I mean, I'm still Mm -hmm. HIV negative and I should be dead. I really should be, considering how I lived through the 70s and 80s. It was a horrible time because everything you saw around you that we were building in the gay games movement was just being destroyed by people dropping left and right. Uh, We have memorial services at the gay games meetings where we, we read the names of all the people who died in those in those first eight to 10 years just to remember them. 
the names. And, you know, it just sounds kind of morbid and all that thing, but I still break down when I hear these names. Because these were people I coached, I dated. Uh, you cannot dismiss that kind of emotional impact that we went through in the 80s. That list of names includes Tom Waddell. At some point between Jessica's birth and Gay Games 2, which was also held in San Francisco, Tom contracted HIV. Sarah says that Tom, like so many others, had serious reservations about holding the second Gay Games in 1986. AIDS sort of took over everything. Nobody wanted to do Gay Games 2 because AIDS. Everything was about AIDS. I said, we need something healthy for the community. We can't just go about AIDS. This is about us all helping each other. We really need to be there for each other. So the games went on, despite the epidemic, the lawsuit, and the lean against Tom's house. Tom was too sick to personally manage things the way he had in 82, and Sarah shouldered a lot of his responsibilities. One day, in the middle of the craziness of Gay Games 2, she left Tom in bed with a 104-degree fever and went to help run the day's events. Someone came up to me at some place that I went and says, congratulations, Tom took the gold medal for Javelin. I said, what? He says, he just won the gold medal in Javelin. I, I thought, my Tom? <laughs> yes, that's what he would do. He'd be sick as a dog and he would run out of the house and he would still compete and win gold medals. I came home and he was back in bed like he never left. And I heard you want a gold. And he just looked at me. I, I, There's nothing I can do. There was nothing I can do. That's how strong Tom felt about the gay games. On March 24, 1987, the Supreme Court of the United States heard arguments in the case of San Francisco Arts and Athletics, Inc. versus United States Olympic Committee. When you take a word out of vocabulary, as powerful as this one, when you withdraw it from the public domain and you bestow it on what we believe and will contend is a state actor, even if you bestow it on a private party, you place it in a position where that word starves for lack of enjoyment on the part of the majority, on the part of others. Only because of the United States Olympic Committee. There's, there's it, it was no more powerful in the, public com uh, in the public domain before that committee than was the phrase Hellenic Games. Well, I think, I think that, Justice Scalia, is both incorrect and a triable dispute of material fact. What the Court seems to assume in that question is that there is no other association on the part of the public with the word Olympic other than the U.S. Olympic Committee. The woman arguing with Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia here is Mary Dunlap a trailblazing lesbian lawyer. Mary, who passed away in 2003, was known as one of San Francisco's fiercest defenders of LGBTQIA equality. Mary competed in the gay games. She also offered to represent them pro bono as the case against the USOC went to the Supreme Court. Mary Dunlap worked tirelessly. She worked, she worked because it was pro bono. We didn't have money to give her. We got money together for certain things to help her out. She loved Tom. She'd do anything for Tom. Congress had created the USOC, named its board of directors, and given it the rights to the word Olympic. According to Mary, this made the singling out of the Gay Olympics an act of state discrimination, a violation of the Equal Protection Clause 
of the 14th Amendment. You still haven't explained to me why, why we should care about whether there's state action. Because it is the bridge, it is the gateway to my client's litigation of its counterclaims that it was discriminated against and that its speech was suppressed when the U.S. Olympic Com Committee chose it and it alone among these many users of the word Olympic to describe athletic contests to suppress that speech. There is evidence of record that there was a discriminatory attitude on the part of the USOC toward my client. It is an equal protection claim, Justice White. That was Mary responding to Justice Byron White. The year before, Justice White had written for the majority as the court upheld a Georgia law prohibiting sodomy. With that decision in mind, it was unsurprising when, on June 25, 1987, the Supreme Court sided with the USOC. At that day, that day and that time and error, with AIDS, with everything going on, the fact that we should have won... But five to four was as close as a win as we were going to get. With the court as it was, and the world as it was in 1987, maybe it could only have gone one way. Even if it was expected, the ruling was a bitter disappointment to many in the gay games community. Tom Waddell died not long after the decision on July 11th, 1987. He was survived by Sarah, their daughter Jessica, his clinic in San Francisco, and the gay games. It was devastating for Sarah and for the community. But by this time, the project Tom had helped to start was destined to live on. Colonel Miller left his role as executive director of the USOC in 1985, while the lawsuit was still ongoing and there was still a tax lien against Tom's house. With new leadership at the USOC and the Supreme Court case behind them, the two parties eventually came to an agreement. The Gay Games forfeited any claims to the use of the word Olympic. The USOC dropped its lawsuit against Tom's estate, and they agreed to cooperate on issues of common interest. There have now been 10 editions of the Gay Games. Most recently, Gay Games 10 in Paris in 2018. And it's abundantly clear that, while the USOC may have won the lawsuit, gay athletes are the real winners of this story. Maybe you remember from one of our earlier episodes that Greg Louganis publicly came out at Gay Games 4 in New York. This was his pre-recorded message for the opening ceremonies. It's exciting to be a part of an event that demonstrates true Olympic ideals to show ourselves and the world how strong we are as individuals and as a community. Welcome to the Gay Games. It's great to be out and proud. Greg wasn't the first Olympic gold medalist to come out. That distinction belongs to swimmer Bruce Hayes, who had come out at Gay Games 3. From just a handful of athletes in the 90s, the number of openly queer participants in the, quote, actual Olympics has skyrocketed to around 185 in the 2020 Tokyo Games. Of course, the Gay Games were not the only thing encouraging gay athletes to come out, but they clearly achieved what their founders had hoped. They provided a space for gay athletes to show the world who they truly were. More people are coming out, and with the people that are coming out, there's a lot of straight athletes that are coming out in support of them. And that's the big thing. A lot of straight athletes are coming out in support of all of the gay athletes. The Gay Games has also helped the Olympics confront and dramatically reduce the possibility of HIV being transmitted during competition. Remember what Gino said about the advice given to him by a young Anthony Fauci? But his advice was so on point. It became 
basically the blood rule of USA Wrestling and then the IOC uh, in terms of how it's communicated and spread and all that stuff. Gino not only took that advice himself, he became an evangelist for practices that protected athletes from the dangers of HIV AIDS. The gay games set the gold standard for safety with protocols known as the blood rule. As their platform grew, the gay games organizers convinced the U.S. wrestling team to adopt this protocol. Eventually, the USOC asked for their help. They're not very forward-thinking. They didn't know what they were going to do about HIV and the blood rule and hepatitis. They didn't know, and we came to them and offered these solutions by being involved in their process. Today, practices that Gino and the Gay Games pioneered are keeping Olympic athletes safe. Between Gay Games 2 and Gay Games 3, the San Francisco Arts and Athletics Association formed the Federation of the Gay Games. The new name was official, and the Gay Games could look ahead. Sarah and Gino have been involved in every Gay Games since the very beginning. They've watched it grow from around 1,500 participants at Gay Games 1 to over 10,000 in Gay Games 10. Today, they're looking ahead to Gay Games 11, which is set to take place in Hong Kong in 2023 after being delayed due to COVID. Now 73, Gino sounds excited as ever to attend, and... If my body holds out, I'll even compete because it's my obligation to put myself out there for some of these young whippersnappers to beat me. And right there, you have the spirit of the gay games. It's not about medals. It's about being there, being yourself, and sharing that feeling with others. With me, it's about participation. Even though I've won many awards, I say you need to participate. Everyone needs to participate. And when you participate with this, you're taking away the stigma. And that's what keeps the games going. Torched is a production of Film Nation Entertainment in association with Gilded Audio. It's executive produced by me, Molly Bloom, Alyssa Martino, Milan Papelka, Andy Chug, and Winnie Donaldson. Nikki Stein produced and edited this episode with support from Ben Branstein and Ben Chug. It was written by Stephen Wood. Technical direction and engineering by Nick Dooley. Original music by James Lavino. A special thanks to Allison Cohen, Sarah Vacchiano, Matt Azenstadt, and Omar Tarbush. The Supreme Court audio you heard in the episode came from Oyez. Next time on Torched, we learn more about the ways that intense physical competition can take a toll on athletes' mental health and the superhuman standards that society holds them to. You saw the backlash that Simone Biles got for dropping out of competitions in Tokyo and a lot of people questioning her strength and her dedication to her country, which to me is ridiculous. That's next time on Torched. Thanks for listening to Torched. Please leave us a review and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Till next time. Is this house a good price compared to others in the area? Are prices going up or down? If I don't make an offer right this very moment, will I miss my chance? 
These are just some of the questions a home buyer might ask. And these are the sorts of questions an agent who is a Realtor can help answer. Because Realtors have the expertise, data, and access to specialty training to help you navigate the process of buying a home. They provide support, guidance, and have your back every step of the way. That's what Realtors do. Because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors.